Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of Indiana Lawyer, returning as your host this week. It's good to be back. The temperature is hot and so are the headlines, which means we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Plus, stick around after the headlines to hear Katie Stancombe's interview with Amy Caruzos, Indiana State Public Defender. So let's dive in. Today is Wednesday, July 27th, 2022, and these are your headlines. To start us off, Indiana Lawyer Editor Olivia Covington has some exciting news about a new program for our parent company, IBJ Media. Olivia? Thanks, Jordan. On July 21st, IBJ Media unveiled its inaugural Indiana 250 list. The list, which was compiled by staffers at Indiana Lawyer, the Indianapolis Business Journal, and Inside Indiana Business, highlights some of the state's most influential Hoosiers across 10 categories, including law, civics, real estate, media, and more. A total of 34 Hoosier legal professionals were recognized in the law category for their contributions to the state. Among those are Indiana Chief Justice Loretta Rush, Senior Judge Sarah Evans-Barker, Justin Forkner, who is the Supreme Court's Chief Administrative Officer, and Karen Bravo, Dean of the IU Robert H. McKinney School of Law. There are also several lawyers featured in the other nine categories who aren't actively practicing law, but who are working in J.D. Advantage jobs. That includes people like former Vice President and Indiana Governor Mike Pence and former Indianapolis Mayor Bart Peterson. But the honorees aren't just limited to the Indianapolis area. Indiana 250 recognizes lawyers and other leaders from as far north as the region to as far south as Evansville and everywhere in between. We celebrated our inaugural honorees at a private reception on July 21st, which featured remarks from Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb. You can check out the full list of the honorees in the law category in the August 3rd issue of Indiana Lawyer. Back to you, Jordan. You can read the full list of our inaugural honorees at indiana250.com. Next, Katie has updates for us on Indiana's evolving abortion landscape. Katie, what can you tell us? Last week, Senate Republican lawmakers unveiled their intentions for abortion in Indiana after weeks of silence. The lawmakers proposed a near-total ban on abortions in Indiana with just three exceptions, if a pregnancy is a result of a rape or an incest, or if the mother's life is in danger. I understand the passion that exists on both sides. Nevertheless, it is our job in the Indiana General Assembly to chart a course for Indiana and determine what our position is on this extremely difficult issue. That's Senate President Pro Tem Rod Bray, who made the abortion announcement on July 20th with fellow Republican Senator Sue Glick. Two abortion-related measures have been proposed, Senate Bill 1, dealing with abortion restrictions, and Senate Bill 2, which would distribute $45 million to a variety of state offices and programs to support healthy pregnancies and families. Senator Glick, the author of Senate Bill 1, said that the bill does not criminalize women who receive abortions and would not impact the morning-after pill, contraceptives, or the treatment of miscarriages. She also dismissed any concern that Senate Bill 1 would hinder treatment in medical emergencies like ectopic pregnancies or in cases where the unborn child would not be able to survive due to a fatal fetal anomaly. The lawmaker said that no new criminal penalties would be included in the proposed abortion legislation that aren't already on the books in Indiana. Here's Glick speaking to that point during a media conference. Being pro-life is not about criminalizing women. It's about preserving the dignity of life and helping mothers bring happy, healthy babies into the world. Indiana's abortion-related laws have started shifting in recent weeks. 
On the heels of the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling that ended the constitutional right to an abortion in Dobbs, federal courts have lifted at least three injunctions on Indiana laws that would restrict abortions. So far, those laws include a requirement to notify parents if their minor child is receiving an abortion and bans on second trimester abortion procedures, as well as abortions performed on the basis of gender, race, or disability. Indiana University Maurer School of Law professor Jody Madiera said she's confused about the proposed bill's language. In her reading of Senate Bill 1, Madiera said multiple inconsistencies can be found that would create conflicts with Indiana's current abortion-related laws. In one example, she noted that the standard for performing a second trimester abortion procedure called dilation and evacuation, also known as dismemberment abortion, is different under the current law as compared to the proposed language in Senate Bill 1. One wonders if one performs a dismemberment abortion because of a serious health risk, is that a level 5 felony? But then I guess it wouldn't be prohibited by the section because it would meet the exception. But the standard that allows it to meet the exception, the serious health risk, is different and lesser than, I think, than permanent substantial impairment. Ken Falk, legal director of the ACLU of Indiana, similarly said that in light of abortion-related laws currently in effect, Senate Bill 1 raises a number of questions. I think that we all expect in Indiana to have a statute that people understand what it means. Keep an eye on the IndianaLawyer.com for additional abortion news. Over to you, Jordan. Thanks, Katie. Staying on the topic of abortion, you may have heard that Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita has been in a public feud with a high-profile Indiana abortion doctor. Here's what we know. In early July, the Indianapolis Star reported that a 10-year-old Ohio girl traveled to Indiana to have an abortion after she was allegedly raped. The procedure was completed by Dr. Caitlin Bernard, who is a named plaintiff in one of the lawsuits challenging Indiana's abortion regulation scheme. The story went viral, reaching the desk of President Joe Biden, who referenced the Ohio girl's story. But news outlets and politicians questioned whether the story was true, and the firestorm only ended when Ohio police announced that a 27-year-old man had been charged with the girl's rape. Rakita, a Republican, got involved when he sent a letter to Governor Eric Holcomb announcing that he was investigating whether Bernard had failed to report the sexual assault of a minor. He then went on the Fox News program Jesse Waters Primetime, saying he was gathering evidence against Bernard for possibly failing to report. The AG then released a statement from his office, saying he was also investigating whether Bernard had reported the abortion as required, and whether she had violated any medical privacy laws. Multiple media outlets have reported that Bernard did make the required reports, and her employer, IU Health, conducted an investigation that found no privacy violations. Bernard then hit back, sending a cease and desist letter to Rakita and filing a tort claim notice against him as a first step toward a possible defamation lawsuit. Meanwhile, Indiana law professors are calling for disciplinary investigation into Rakita for possible violations of lawyer ethics rules. Rakita has said that he is still investigating whether Bernard violated any state or federal laws related to the Ohio girl's case. It's important to note that he is still a lawyer and active in good standing with the Indiana Bar, and no disciplinary charges have actually been filed against him. We'll keep an eye on this situation and provide updates as we get them. Moving into court news, three Indiana appellate judges are preparing for a retention vote. Court of Appeals judges Paul Mathias, Nancy Vidic, and Leanna Weissman will all face a retention vote in the November general election. As some background, judges of the Indiana Supreme Court and Court of Appeals of Indiana sit for retention in the first general election following their appointment then every 10 years after that. Both Matthias and Vidic were appointed to the appellate bench in 2000 and were retained in 2002 and 2012. Weissman was appointed in 2020, so this year is her first retention vote. 
The Indiana Supreme Court Office of Judicial Administration has created a website where Hoosiers can learn more about the trio of judges before they vote in November. You can check that out at in.gov courts retention. In federal court news, Magistrate Judge Doris Pryor of the Indiana Southern District Court has officially begun the confirmation process that could land her on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. On July 13th, Pryor appeared before the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee for her first confirmation hearing. President Joe Biden nominated her to the Chicago-based appellate court in May. If confirmed, she will take the seat vacated when Judge David Hamilton takes senior status this year. Pryor's performance during her confirmation hearing has garnered praise, but it wasn't completely smooth sailing. As Indiana lawyer senior reporter Marilyn Odendahl reports, Pryor faced tough questions from Republican Senator Mike Lee of Utah, who asked about comments she made at a Constitution Day event at her son's school. Specifically, Pryor told her son and his classmates that the Constitution is a, quote, living document. Lee focused on that statement, asking Pryor if she believes that the Constitution's meaning can change over time. In response, Pryor told Lee that, quote, what's important about it is that the framers saw the need to be able to have this Constitution, be able to apply to circumstances they might not have thought of, searching a cell phone or a wiretap, end quote. She added that in making judicial decisions, she would be bound by both the Constitution and by precedent from the Seventh Circuit and the U.S. Supreme Court. Neither Pryor nor Lee were hostile during the exchange. Pryor's next step in the confirmation process is a committee vote. From there, she'd head to the full U.S. Senate, which could confirm her by September. If she's confirmed, she'd be the first African-American woman from Indiana to serve on the Seventh Circuit. Stay tuned for more updates from the Senate. Back in Indiana, there could be big changes coming to Hoosier courtroom soon. Katie has that story. Indiana could be closer to permitting cameras in the courtroom. The question of whether cameras should be allowed to showcase judicial proceedings in a variety of cases is now up for debate in Indiana. Earlier this month, the Indiana Supreme Court proposed an amendment to Judicial Conduct Rule 2.17. The proposed changes would give Indiana trial court judges discretion to allow news media to broadcast, televise, record, and photograph court proceedings. Justices are asking the public to give their input on the proposed rule changes before 1 p.m. ET on August 1st. A variety of changes are proposed under the amendment, chiefly that judges would have discretion to determine whether they will permit the broadcasting, televising, recording, or photographing of court proceedings in their individual courtrooms. That comes with the caveat that the means of recording should not distract participants or impair the dignity of the proceeding. Additionally, the proposed rule says that judges who allow broadcasts also have the discretion to interrupt or stop the coverage if they deem it appropriate at any time during the proceeding. All civil and criminal proceedings would be eligible for broadcast, except for proceedings closed to the public, either by state statute or Supreme Court rules, if the judge permits. Cases prohibited for broadcast include those involving minors, juvenile matters, sex offense victims, jurors, attorney-client communications, bench conferences, and materials on counsel tables and judicial bench. The news media must also submit requests to broadcast from the court. To learn more about the proposed rule and Indiana's long-debated history with cameras in the courtroom, check out our coverage at theindianalawyer.com. To wrap up today's headlines, let me tell you about a story I'm working on for the August 3rd issue of Indiana Lawyer. On July 17th, armed bystander Eli Dickin of Seymour shot and killed a mass shooter at the Greenwood Park Mall. Police said Dickin, who has been called a good Samaritan by some police and politicians, subdued the shooter in less than 15 seconds. Dickin was carrying a handgun despite Simon Properties' restrictions that no weapons be on the premises. 
Dickin had a license to carry a handgun, even though it is no longer required by state law as of July 1st. So what laws are in play here? I'm speaking to multiple attorneys, including the one representing Dickin, that are experts in firearms, self-defense, and property rights in Indiana to provide some insight on the legal implications of when an event like this happens. Be sure to pick up the next issue of Indiana Lawyer to learn more. Okay, that's it for this week's headlines. As always, head over to theindianalawyer.com for more news and updates from the Hoosier legal community. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear Katie's interview with State Public Defender Amy Caruso's. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. So with us today for the podcast is Indiana State Public Defender Amy Carozos. She has previously served as the Marion County Public Defender in the Juvenile Division, and she's also served as a project director for the Indiana Public Defender Council. She's a graduate of Indiana University McKinney School of Law and was appointed by the Indiana Supreme Court to fill a four-year term beginning in January 2020. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So for those who don't know who you are already, can you kind of walk us through what you do, a little bit about yourself, um, and how you got into public defense work. Sure. Well, to start off with, I was born and raised in Indiana. I grew up in Greenwood. I went to IU Bloomington for undergrad, um, except for a brief stint in California after um, undergrad. I've been lived and worked in Indiana my whole life. After college, um, I worked a couple of years before I decided to go to law school, and I went to what's now McKinney School of Law. As a personal note, I've been married for a very, very long time to a pretty great guy, and we have three grown children who are also pretty great. But I actually got into public defense and went to law school because, like a lot of attorneys, I wanted to help people. I knew that I wanted to work in criminal law in law school. That's what interests me. It just clicked. Um, when I was a teenager, a close relative who was also still a teenager spent a few years in prison. And that had a big impact because there was so much that was wrong about the situation and the system, the way that um, it operated just made things worse. Mm -hmm. And so um, criminal defense was just a great fit for me. That was really what I was interested in. I believe everyone accused should have an equal playing field. That's really interesting. I didn't know that about you. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> yeah. So can you kind of walk us through then what the state public defender's office does and what kind of cases you typically see? Um, sure. Well, just give you a little bit of brief history. We were created, our office was created in 1945 by the General Assembly, and we provide representation to incarcerated indigent persons that are looking to collaterally challenge their convictions or sentences. And in 1969, the Indiana Supreme Court adopted the rules for post-conviction relief. And um, that provides an avenue for relief for any person that's convicted or sentenced for a crime by an Indiana court and who's claiming their federal or state constitutional rights were violated, um, that their sentence is erroneous. 
that there's evidence of material facts that weren't previously pre presented or heard, or that um, the interests of justice require vacation of their conviction or sentence. And so that's rule post-conviction one. That's where we operate. That's our world that we operate mm -hmm. under. Our office um, also is um, statutorily presented with providing counsel for trial courts when they can't find or need someone outside of their own county to provide representation in public defense cases. So that often happens in appeals. We have counties who don't have enough attorneys or can't find someone to do certain appeals. Sometimes that happens in a trial court situation at trial level. If there's a conflict with the public defender agency, there's not enough. Um, so occasionally we get trial appointments too. But Last uh, fiscal year, we uh, 23 counties reached out in various cases to um, have us appoint counsel for them. Mm -hmm. We also represent, so we represent primarily adults in the prison system in Indiana who've requested assistance and are seeking to challenge their conviction or sentence. We also represent juveniles that are in the Department of Correction, and we have some attorneys that specialize in that in our office. Mm -hmm. So you said that you had 23 counties reach out for assistance. Was that out of the norm for the office? Uh, no, we uh, we do have, especially like I said, with appeals, we do have dozens of counties that need help, need to find um, an attorney and ask us to, to help with that process. I would say there's an uptick in the amount of trial appointments that we've received over the last couple of years. Hmm. What are some of the biggest challenges that you've faced working in public defense? Well, um, with public defense, funding is also a, it's always a big challenge, and it's an it's a challenge now. Um, I would say one big new challenge now is the shortage shortage of attorneys, and so uh, the. Public Defender Commission, I believe, was interviewed by the Indiana lawyer last year and kind of talked about what that shortage looks like. And um, it's especially dire in public defense and prosecutors' offices because obviously our pay is less than the private sector. Um, there are less students, I think still there are less students um, graduating from law school. And um, there's a phenomena called the graying of the profession. And that mm -hmm. is something that was uh, I was surprised by, but I learned of a couple of years ago that there are just a huge chunk of the legal profession that is re uh, reaching retirement age. Mm -hmm. And in Indiana, especially in rural communities, some of them have um, few attorneys anyway. And the majority of attorneys that they do have may be close to retirement age. Yeah. So in a couple of years, I think we're going to see um, even more of a situation than we do now. Generally, this, I don't know if we would call this a challenge, but something that I always think about anyway is <clears throat> it's a challenge to kind of push up against us as a society living with what is now our norm. And the way that that affects us here in the criminal justice system is our incarceration rates. And so if we're used to that here in the United States, but it's good every so often to take a step back and look like look at what we look like compared to the rest of the world. So the United States is has the highest prison and jail population in the world. We also have the highest incarceration rate in the world. And it's not tied to violent crime rates. There are 
places that have much higher violent crime rates than we do with less incarceration rates. And just causes such a devastation to society when we incarcerate such a high percentage of our population. In um, 2016, I looked at some data before our talk here um, and found data that showed almost two-thirds of the people in the U.S., in local jails in 2016 hadn't been convicted of a crime. So that's another area where, um, you know, there's not, that's not even somebody who has been proven guilty. It's just pretrial incarceration that affects poor people disproportionately and can just devastate communities and homes and families. Earlier, you talked about um, that you also represent juveniles. And I know that you personally have a lot of history and experience working with juveniles. How have you seen Indiana's approach to the safety and well-being of juvenile offenders kind of change since you've been in the profession and more specifically in the past decade or so? So I've been practicing law for a long time, and it has it really has changed dramatically. What we know now about adolescent brain development has changed the environment a great deal. And the U.S. Supreme Court's decisions that reflect that science um, were also helpful to change the way that we look at kids, I think. And I think there is more compared to when I started um, practicing juvenile law, which was you know, over 20 years ago, I didn't didn't see the emphasis on rehabilitation and looking at evidence-based practices and what works compared to punishment. And every so often we'll get that where there's maybe a reaction to some incident where, you know, we, we gravitate towards punishment. But I think there's enough information out there and um, enough information about what works and what doesn't work and how kids develop that we can, you know, stop that before we get out of whack. Um, with kids as well as adults now, too, there is more emphasis on um, mental health treatment. And so that's something that has just been a big improvement, I think. Mm-hmm. And I see now the legislators uh, being more knowledgeable about juvenile issues and adolescent development and more willing to listen to those arguments when they look at you know laws and what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. Is there anything uh, that you want to see change still that hasn't yet for kids? One thing that I hope continues to improve is the um, detention and incarceration rates for kids. Indiana has a really great program in our Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative, JDAI. And that's something that uh, Justice David is going to continue to head up, I believe, after even after he retires so in JDAI, it's just an example of, you know, it's the idea is only use detention for kids that need it. So it's targeted and it's, and there's been a big reduction in the use of detention through JDAI. And at the same time, we have really, really great data that shows that crime has an increase in some instances. It's the reverse. And so it works and it's something that saved you know, money and it's saved, you know, the the toll on kids to be incarcerated when you don't need to be is um, just really devastating. And so I think that is something I hope we continue to support and it continues to grow in Indiana. Um, Another thing that I just um, would like to see some improvement in or to keep 
the focus on is how some of our laws affect race and racial disparities. And I think that's something that it's good to keep in mind every time something new comes up to look at. Well, I know in the past when I've spoken with you, I think when you were first appointed to the position, you had described Indiana's post-conviction system as being unique. Can you kind of talk about how our system differs from others and why that is? Right. So in the vast majority of states, there is um, a right, there's some appointment of counsel in collateral cases and post-conviction cases. In the majority of states, it's discretionary. And then in some states like us, it's statutory. So um, we are, every time a post-conviction petitioner, pro se petitioner files a, um, a PCR petition, and they ask for our assistance as long as they're indigent, then we get appointed that case. Mm-hmm. And so we are the ones, our experienced attorney are the ones that are reviewing it for merit. In places where it's discretionary, that puts the onus on the court to determine whether, you know, it's somebody that should be appointed counsel. There's different criteria mm-hmm. from state to state. It also gives our laws, though, um, our rule gives us the discretion to not move forward if a case doesn't have merit. So we're taking on that and we're doing a thorough investigation and we have experienced attorneys that are doing it. The other thing, um, it's not really compared to other states, but within Indiana, you know, we're a county-based defense system. Mm -hmm. And so this is one instance where we don't put the, put it on the county to take care of the public defense cost of post-conviction. And so we are a state agency and we provide that service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the way we're set up, it also gives us um, independence from the local courts. Mm-hmm. Do you, of all the different options that you could have, do you prefer it the way that we have it here in Indiana? I do. I think it, our system works well. And um, I didn't mention it, but when you asked me in the beginning about what kind of work we do, primarily we do adult post-conviction cases. And of those, uh, last the last fiscal year, we had saved about over 320 years of prison time for our clients. And so if you look at what that cost to house somebody in the Department of Correction for a year, it worked out to about roughly over $6 million savings to the state of Indiana. So I think we are cost effective and I think it works well because um, we, because we do a good job. Mm-hmm. We have great attorneys that do a good job. Well, since you've become the state public defender, um, how have you seen or fostered stronger connections between the defense community in Indiana and your office? That's something that I was wanting to do when I um, started. So we've made an effort to beyond things like uh, state and local bar association committees and sections. I try to maintain close contact with and collaboration with the public defender council that, you know, it has thousands of uh, public defense members in Indiana. Um, They do training and technical assistance and also the public defender commission so that we all kind of know the issues that are coming up and what's affecting public defenders um, that are out in the field. Also, um, attorneys from my office have done more training with the Public Defender Council, and so they've done some uh, several CLEs over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Are you happy with the progress that you've made in the past two years then? Um, there are some things I'm happy with. There are some things that I wish we were at a different point. 
like everyone else in the world, COVID kind of, you know, put us back on some things that we had hoped to Mm -hmm. have made more progress on. I'm very proud of my office that we weren't set up to um, work remote at all. And we like scrambled and put band-aids on and everything to get it so that we never lost any a day's work. We were we worked throughout everything. So mm-hmm. we might have been remote for part of that time, but everybody was continuing to work and to do their jobs. Yeah. You receive hundreds of requests, I think, from inmates every year asking for their cases to be reviewed. So how do you know which cases have merit, the ones that you decide to move forward with? Yeah. So we don't um, pick up certain cases. We pick up every case that the courts refer to us. Mm-hmm. And so the way that it operates here is um, that if someone's incarcerated and files a pro se petition for post-conviction relief, they have an option of they have to do an you know affidavit stating they're indigent, and then they um, can ask for us. There's a just a box in the form that they check to say that they want representation from our office. So those go to our office, and every case gets assigned to an attorney, and every case unless somebody gets out before we can get to them or they decide that they don't want to go ahead with us. Every case is thoroughly reviewed. And those that do have merit after review of review the issues that um, our clients raise pro se, but we also look at the record and, and talk to them because, you know, they're not lawyers. They don't always know what uh, what issues to argue. And so we do an investigation. If it has merit, then our attorneys litigate that. Public defense is probably unlike any other type of practice of law, I would say. So what keeps you in it? What motivates you? One thing that motivates me is that there's so much that's that needs to be improved still. There's just so much work to be done, and you just need people in there fighting for people that otherwise don't really have a voice and that sometimes don't get treated fairly. And sometimes the laws aren't fair or somebody wasn't treated fairly under the Constitution or under the state laws. So uh, that keeps me going. Also, though, I think just seeing what other public defenders are doing and people that are doing this are doing this because they believe in it. Nobody's doing it to make a lot of money, obviously. Um, It's because they believe it's important. And I just see people just working, you know, working their hearts out for um, to try and make, you know, try and get justice for people, try to make the system fair. Um, so that keeps me going too. Yeah. Is there anything else that the public defender's office has coming down the pipes or any initiatives coming up that we should be aware of or looking for? There are some, there are always different issues that are percolating. And there are a couple that if you interview me in a, in a couple months, I can talk about. So right now we're kind of weighing a couple of new things that have, um, that are going to affect a lot of people. So we're, you know, moving forward. So I'd be happy to come back and talk about <laughs> that right now. We're in the planning stage. We're just mm-hmm. trying to get through cases quicker, um, while still doing a thorough job, you know, um, representing I, I think one thing that's I didn't check the DOC population before I came over, but I know the jail populations are up. I think the DO Department of Correction population is up too. So for that it must it's probably gonna mean that we're gonna have more clients. Is there anything else you'd like to add or mention that we didn't? 
I don't think so, Katie, but I appreciate you having me on. We appreciate you coming. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you.